Hello, Buonasera, and welcome to the third egotistical podcast. I'm your resident egotist, Tony LaRocca. The idea behind the egotistical podcast is that I want to listen to you and learn something about you, or your favorite subject, or film, or philosophical belief. Whatever it is, I want to learn about it from you. This podcast is going to be a little different than the others. I've always been fascinated by family histories, and wiser people than I have said that we should sit our elders down, ask their stories, and record them. So, I've recorded my father, Anthony J. LaRocca Sr., who just turned 89 this past spring. The recordings took place over two days, so I've taken his family history and insights and placed them more or less in chronological order. So why don't we start from the beginning, in the late 1800s, with my great-grandfather coming to America from Laraca di Cefalu, Sicily. Well, Grandpa, my grandfather, he was the 11th child and the only boy in his family. So evidently, they kept trying until they had a boy. He left 10 sisters in Sicily. So he came to the United States. And when he went through the... Uh, Ellis Island. Ellis Island. They asked him what town he came from, and he came from La Rocca, the rock. The rock was a big protruding rock out of the ground. Yeah, it's a like fortress. A, like a mountain. And the village below, the whole front of the mountainside, was La Rocca. So the guy put down that my grandfather's name was La Rocca. Do you know what his original last uh, name no, was? No, it might have been Aversa, because a cousin of Aversa sponsored his coming to the United States. You had to have a sponsor, you had to have $100, and you had to sign a certificate that you would not be a burden to the United States for a year. So then, when he came to the United States, he would look for a job. There was a construction outfit. So he went and he asked the guy, you know, with his hat in his hand, because he spoke very broken English. He says, I want a job. And the guy says, well, you got to go see the boss and ask him. And he says, what is the boss's name? He says, Mr. Son of a Dog. Because <laughs> they figured that when this silly little Italian guy went over asking for a job, the boss would knock his block off. So, fortunately, the boss was a lot smarter because there's this guy standing there with his hat in his hand asking for a job, and the foreman said, who told you to see me, Mr. Son of a Dog? You know, he used other words. Yeah. So, he says, that guy over there. So, he says, oh. And he went over there, and he knocked the block off the guy that sent my grandfather <laughs> And then he'd come back to my grandfather and he says, now you have his job. <laughs> <laughs> so he got a job. All, all these masons were putting up bricks and, and everything. And he had to keep count of how many bricks they put up and everything. But my grandmothers were sisters. My grandma Laraka, my father's mother, was married to Mr. Sharafasi. And Mr. Shirafasi worked on the job with my grandfather in the, in the building. And Mrs. Shirafasi fell off one of the floors or something wow. and got killed. Yeah, there was no OSHA back then. Yeah, none of that. So my grandfather went to the funeral to pay his respects. 
So when he went into the funeral parlor, he saw my grandmother and their two children, my Uncle Nick and my Aunt Mary, and he fell in love with her just looking at her. And a couple of weeks after they buried Mrs. Sharavas, see, he went and asked my grandmother if he could keep company with her, that he thought she was beautiful and whatever. They went out for a couple of years, and she wound up marrying him. And then they had eight children, eight men. Uh, two died of whooping cough. Well, they called it whooping cough. I don't yeah. know what the real. Could have been tuberculosis. Might have been emphysema. Might have, who knows? So one day he got hurt on a job, not seriously, but he went to the doctor. To interrupt you, this is back in, what, the 1890s? Yeah. Okay. Give yeah. some reference. <laughs> Please, go on. So he went to the doctor, and he's in the doctor's office, and this patient before him had a short leg, and he limped, you know, walked like Quasimodo, and he slipped and everything. So as the man went out, my grandfather said to the doctor, I could make him a shoe that would make him walk straight. And the doctor says, you could do that? He says, yeah, I was an apprentice to a shoemaker in Italy. So he says, I'll give you the measurement of the guy's leg. You do that and come back to me. So he made the shoe. He brought it back to the doctor. And the guy was walking almost straight. So he says, I'll tell you what, the doctor said to him, he says, I'll, I'll back you with money and open a shoe store and you can make orthopedic shoes for me. And so that's what my grandfather did. He became a maker of shoes. And then he had my father and my uncles all do shoe repairs. My grandfather would be lost in his work. And uh, the guy came in, and my grandfather says, hello, how are you? And the guy says, oh, not so good. My wife just died, and we buried her. And my grandfather says, oh, that's nice. <laughs> and my father ran over and said, Pop, he just said that his wife died, and you're saying, that's nice. So my grandfather was so embarrassed, he ran after the guy, because the guy walked out. <laughs> he ran after the guy, and he apologized like crazy. And he was so sorry. He asked his forgiveness. My father said when he worked, he would just concentrate so much on what he was doing, nothing went in his head. He said he could look at a girl and tell if she was pregnant before she knew it. Because he knew how when people walked, he knew what was going on with them, whether they were sick and feeble, mm. whether they were healthy. He could just diagnose whatever condition they had just by looking at their feet. It was a superpower. They had a big business. And one day, the black hand came to my grandfather and he said, you need protection because... Your children might get hurt. The windows in your store may get broken. And we'll protect you against all that. So my grandfather went to the police right away. And the cops, he was just another dago. They told him, we can't be your protection. So in other words, they were being paid off by the black hand. So grandfather had to pay out of his profits so he was very angry with the police because they were just like in Italy. The mafia controlled everything. 
They had a cop on every single corner in those days. And they knew every single house and every single person that lived in that block. As a kid, if you were out after 10 o'clock, the police would bring you home. I never met my grandfather. He came home one day and he said to my grandmother, I don't feel so good, I'm going to lay down. Call me when dinner's ready. Well, when dinner was ready, she went in and he was dead. His appendix had burst and poisoned his system. They had so many stories about him. Grandma would tell so many stories about him. You've told me before about how your mother and father, my grandpa and grandma, were originally betrothed to other people or intended for other people. Could you tell me about that? Yeah, well, when I was a little boy, all the families had arranged marriages. If you had a bakery and a daughter and you wanted a son-in-law that would be making an income and Mm -hmm. they would match up who they thought was, they'd give her a strong guy. And so the grandmothers would do the matching and there'd be family councils arranging for who should marry who. Sometimes it was a wonderful arrangement, a good balance. They were all from the old country, so it was a protection in some ways. Some were very bad arrangements. People were very unhappy. You could tell that they were forced into things that they didn't want to do. For example, my father was selected by this Polozola family. The girl, Lily, was crazy about my father because he was a really nice guy, steady, honest, your grandfather. Mm-hmm. He was really something special, and Lily wanted to marry him. And my grandmother on my mother's side, they had picked out this piccolo player because my grandfather was the head of a hundred-piece Italian band. They used to play all the political gatherings for the city. That was Melchior Graziano. Yeah, Melchior Graziano. And he was a composer, but he had a, I think it was a flute player that was in tremendous demand. He did all the Broadway shows. He was selected for special orchestras, and he was favored by my mother's father to marry her. What happened was my father and my mother fell in love with each other. They were first cousins, and they ran off and got married at City Hall. Not the regular church wedding or the planned wedding. And so the grandmothers were kind of ticked off (laughs) because they planned all the weddings, and they planned, they got involved with who would be invited and who wouldn't be invited. So my father and mother became the black sheep of the family because they were the only ones out of, I guess, 10 aunts and uncles who did what they were told, except my mother and father. They broke the barrier. How peculiar because Paula Zoro married somebody else and she had a daughter, Caroline. And when I was in Korea, Caroline and I would write to each other The mother was still in love with my father, even though it was 20 years later. And it's interesting how if you care about somebody, it stays with you. So anyway, there were so many, like I say, there were so many unhappy marriages that people kind of knew about, 
or gossiped about, but never said anything because they didn't want troubles because <laughs> <laughs> of the Italian attitude. But that was the arranged marriages. Hmm. And you were the second Anthony LaRocca. You were uh, named yeah, after your brother. My sister had a twin, and he was Anthony. They had named him Anthony, and she was Leonardo after Grandma and Anthony after Grandpa. So they predicted that I would live a double life, my own, and the first Anthony that never got to live. I mean, he was born, and they didn't have incubators in those days. They put them in shoeboxes with cotton to keep them warm, and that was it. So my sister survived, but Anthony never survived. But still, they had to honor Grandpa by using the name again. And they couldn't use my older brother's name because that was entitled to my mother's father, Melchior. They went through all kinds of tradition. And my son Joe was named after your father. Yeah. And you were named after myself, which also covered my grandfather. It's a two-for-one shot. Yeah. It was so funny. All of my uncles and aunts, everybody had an Anthony. So you go to a wedding and someone would say Anthony and 10 guys would turn around. So that was funny too. I was born in what they call the railroad flat. It was rooms above a butcher store. And they called it a railroad flat because it was one room in front of the other. So it would be like the living room, then the bedrooms, then the kitchen, then the bathroom. We'd go straight in a line, no off to the sides, up or down. It was like a railroad train. So they called them railroad flats. And it looked out on the Second Avenue well. So when I was born, they told me the story that the doctor came from 33rd Street, where the bus terminal now is. He came under the Second Avenue well in a horse and buggy during a thunderstorm. But he charged my father $5 for <laughs> delivering me. Now, each one of my children, Mm -hmm. you and your sisters, were thousands each. Oh, sure. (laughs) You know, so. And I'm sure, thank God for insurance, I'm sure my kids were at least 10 times that. Yeah. It was just so humorous that I was a $5 baby (laughs) and I was delivered in the house. Because I was born in a different world. Great Depression, nobody had jobs. Nobody had help from the government. They had soup kitchens, yeah. which was a charitable events, but they were mostly by religious organizations. So nobody got supplemental income. Nobody got housing. Mm. Nobody got anything. You were on your own. And since everybody was out of work, this is again before the war with Italy and Germany and Japan, there was nothing. In fact, I lived in Manhattan, and I watched them take down the Second Avenue well, and all the scrap iron from the Second Avenue well, which is now they're building a subway. Yeah, I worked on that actually, the Second oh, Avenue did? subway. Yeah, fantastic. It's a small world. All that steel was sold to Japan, and then Japan gave it back to us at Pearl Harbor. <laughs> so. <laughs> It shows you how things work in the reverse. 
But the thing that was difficult is, well, I had to tell you the story of my mother. My mother was having trouble giving birth to my younger brother, and they rushed her to Bellevue Hospital. And for some reason, one of the doctors, interns, they have no idea who did it. They gave her an injection to help her delivery. But it was experimental drug, actually. And what it does, when she delivered my brother Joe, it burned her brain out. And she became like an Alzheimer victim. She would just stare off into space. I never knew my mother. I knew where she was. Rather than be sued, Bellevue made an agreement with my father to take care of her for the rest of her life because she needed 24-7 help. But anyway, she lived in an institution for 20 years, Pilgrim State Hospital in Brentwood, Long Island. She would just stare off into space. She wouldn't talk to you. And it was heartbreaking when your own mother can't talk to you, can't share anything with you can't even acknowledge that you exist. So it was a big chunk of my childhood that I missed because all of my cousins, and I had a great many, they all had happy families, mother and father, things done for them, and we were dysfunctional. I had my brothers and my sister, myself, and my father had to provide for us, and he did. He worked two jobs. He worked iron work during the day, and he worked cutting hair in my uncle's, his brother's barber shop across the street from our apartment. And I could see him every day, but I never got to talk to him until he did our good night prayer, and that was it. So for 20 years, he would work two jobs. Every Sunday, we would go to church as a family, all of us. And then after Mass, he would go to the hospital and feed my mother lunch. And we would go to Grandma's and spend the day till he came home from the hospital. And that's the only time we really saw him or we really talked with him. It wasn't until after she died that my father and I bonded, that we went to ball games and sporting events. Prior to that, I just saw him for a good night prayer. And he never remarried? No, my father won. In fact, I asked him, I said that I understood that while she was alive, he would never remarry. But there were so many people that liked him, (laughs) widows and whatnot. I says, why don't you remarry? I'm never marry, he says, because I loved your mother and I would never marry again. Well, that's such a heartbreaking story, and I know it must have been so hard for you and Aunt Nalda and Uncle Mel and Uncle Joe to grow up like that. Now, you mentioned your older brother, Melchior. Could you tell us a story about him? My older brother was built like Superman. Mm. He was built like the letter Y. He had tremendous shoulders. He could never buy a suit. It had to be made because the waist would be like a 38, and the shoulders would be 55. So he was like Superman. He did calisthenics. He was training to do this high bar work and everything. He was really active. Was this before World War II or after World Uh, War II? Before World War II. Anyway, there was this, I think his name was Charlie. 
But Charlie welched on a bet. Everybody used to play the horses, the numbers, baseball. So Charlie welched on the bet. And Charlie was your cousin? A cousin, yeah. And there was a lot of money involved. So uh, the bookie said, pay up. And he says, no, my cousin Mel will protect me. My brother knew nothing about it. So the bookie had two guys with blackjack beat the hell out of my brother. They surrounded him and wrapped him with these, oh, like a bag full of nickels. My brother knew nothing about it, wasn't aware of anything, never said that he would protect this guy. In fact, the guy disappeared and no one ever heard from him again. So they don't know if he went across the country, but he was gone. But the thing is, my brother got beat up for nothing. So my father went to Jaime the bookie, and he said, Jaime, he says, why don't you come to me? He says, why are you beat? He says, I never welched on the bed. And Jaime says, well, you know, we were threatened. My brother was just never the same after that. He, he would worry when two guys would come around him. People do things and get you involved and you have no relationship whatsoever. The guy was just shooting his mouth off, but he got my brother beat up. So, yeah, he was never the same. Because World War II, he was in the liberation of Berlin. They actually parachuted in to the American sector. The only thing I found out what he did was I got a letter from him and it was all blacked out. And I saved the letter. When he came home from the war, I said, Mel, what is this that's all blacked out? He says, oh, that's when I wrote that the Russians were shooting at us. <laughs> they were stripping everything out of Berlin. And if you came near their sector, they would shoot at you. But since they were our allies, we weren't allowed to say anything about it. So they blacked out all the letters to let the people know what the hell was going on with our yeah. supposed... Uncle Joe, Stalin. And yeah. So Uncle Mel was in World War II, and you were in the Korean War. And I know you have some memoirs prepared for us, so why don't I just sit back and let you read them? In the year 1950, after graduating from Erasmus High in Flatbush, Brooklyn, New York, I was drafted into the United States Army by President Harry S. Truman during the Korean War, especially at the time China sent 33 divisions to support North Korea against the United Nations forces. At one time or another, all our family served our country. My dad was in the First World War. My older brother was in the liberation of the American sector of Berlin, Germany during the Second World War. My sister in the Red Cross. Her husband served on a seaplane tender in the Pacific and my younger brother on a Navy destroyer. I was in combat during the Korean War. Plus, my son served when he graduated high school. That sets the stage for my story. This story is about Herman and basic training at Fort Dix, New Jersey, when I was 18 years old. 
Herman was twice the size and weight of anyone in our platoon, and Herman was a bully, a very cruel and crude person. I avoided even looking in his direction. After a day of basic training, our clothes and boots were usually covered in mud, and it was required by morning inspection that everyone be cleaned up and their boots polished. What Herman would do was select someone to polish his boots, even insisting on a spit shine, or he would punch them so hard they would fly to the end of the barracks. One day, Herman dropped his muddy boots on my footlocker and said, Rocky, do a good spit shine. I picked up his muddy boots, walked over to his bed, and dropped the muddy boots on his bed not just on his footlocker. Oh, he said, someone wants a knuckle sandwich. Now, I'm not stupid, nor did I have a death wish, but I knew from gangs in Brooklyn, if you let anyone bully you, everyone would treat you like dirt and be abusive because they think you will back down, and that made them brave. Of course, the whole platoon gasped, expecting me to be demolished. So I said to Herman, Look, I know you can destroy me, but if you touch me, when you go to sleep tonight, I will go to the equipment locker, get a bat, and smash your head in while you're asleep. Then I will throw you down the stairs. Everyone you beat up will testify that you tripped. We're going to career anyway, so I have nothing to lose. Herman said, at training tomorrow, you're going to have a big accident. He gave his muddy boots to another guy to shine. That night, when lights were out, I went to the equipment locker, got a bat, and shouldered the bat. I marched up and down in front of Herman's bed. He kept one eye open. About a half hour later, one of the guys Herman had previously beaten up took the bat and replaced me so I could get some sleep, and others continued to relieve each other throughout the night. That morning, Herman was groggy from lack of sleep. We did the same routine the next night. In the morning, Herman went crying hysterically that everyone wanted to kill him and took him away in a straitjacket. We never saw or heard of Herman again. Our platoon bonded and was the best outfit in training at Fort Dix. One other thing about my basic training, our platoon leader was Sergeant Potter. He had just returned from a tour in Korea and had a group of medals that covered his whole chest. He said, and I quote, the only ones that would return alive from Korea were those who gave 100%. I took his advice and returned. And so, basic training at Fort Dix is completed, and we were given one weekend off to say goodbye to family and friends. Outside of a week of summer camp, I had never been away from my family, especially to go off to war. We shipped out by train from Fort Dix in New Jersey and traveled across the northern part of the United States to Seattle, Washington, where our troop ship was. It took almost eight days to go that route. We were sidetracked often while freight cars had the right of way. 
We played pinochle chords morning, noon, and night. Johnny Mignoni, Joe Ruggiero, Paul something or other, and myself. America is such a large and beautiful country. We waited in Seattle for troops from the south. Half the ship was northerners and half was southerners. We boarded the USS General William A. Mann troop ship. Once aboard the ship, I got violently seasick. I felt like I was throwing up my toenails. I begged to be thrown overboard. I hurt so bad. Everything is now funny side up. I was assigned to serve food. When I threw up on the food table, I was placed on guard duty in the crow's nest. Now that's a small bucket at the very peak of the ship. While on my eight-hour tour, I had the Southern Cross, and it seemed possible to reach up and grab a star. There were billions of them, and we were in blackout, so the stars were even brighter. We went to Sasebo, Japan to sign our death certificates, who would get our $10,000 life insurance policy. I really never thought about actually dying, but I was growing up, I guess. After that, we went to Incheon and went to the beach by landing barges. On reaching land, I did what Pope John Paul II did. I got on my knees and kissed the ground. Two guys grabbed me under my arms and carried me forward. We went north to the capital, Seoul, and I joined the 45th Division, which was the Thunderbirds, an Oklahoma National Guard outfit. My first day on the front line, I was selected with 11 other Americans and 12 South Koreans, 24 men in all, to man a listening post down in the valley in front of the main line. The command expected a major attack. I never realized this was a suicide mission and we were cannon fodder. I had no idea where I was, what lied in the valley below. We each received a PRC-10 radio, rations, and we were told we would be relieved by the next eight-hour shift. The 24 of us were spaced out by our company captain. He was very positive and reassuring. Then it got dark like it was going to rain. I built a tiny shelter with rocks and my poncho to cover it for the rain. I used my PRC-10 radio to check in, but only got static as the radio was jammed by the North Koreans. And then the whole world around me exploded. Artillery shells all against the hill behind me, which was our main line, it was being bombarded. Rocks were coming down all around from the noise was deafening, and I was scared as I watched for enemy troops. The first eight-hour watch was over, but no relief came. It turned out nobody came for two days, as we had a 48-hour bombardment. While this was going on all around me, it rained like the day of Noah's flood. We did not know if you're bleeding or if you just wet your pants. For 48 hours, I prayed the 23rd Psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. There is nothing I shall want. In green pastures you let me gaze. 
in safe waters you lead me. You restored my strength. You guide me along the right paths for the sake of your name. Even though I walk in dark valleys, I fear no harm, for you are at my side. Your right and staff give me courage. You set a table before me as my enemies watch. You anoint my head with oil. My cup runneth over. Surely only goodness and love will pursue me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord for years to come. After the 48 hours bombardment, it was as if nothing happened. The birds all sang, the sun came out, there was even a rainbow. The captain and men with stretchers showed up. Holy crap, he said, you still alive? Of the 24-man detail, I was the only survivor. Could it be that praying the 23rd Psalm spared my life? That day, I was made an acting corporal and was given a platoon of 40 new recruits who were just the way I was two days earlier, but nobody told them. They thought I was an old-timer. A week later, we were rotated to the back area for rest and rehabilitation, such as medical checkups, hot food, showers, clean clothes, sleeping on a cot instead of the floor, letters and packages from home, newspapers, that was the stars and stripes, and peace and quiet. War produces profits for everyone. There are guns, shells, tanks, planes, ships, jeeps, equipment, hospitals, etc., etc., and so on. America was supporting the chicken farmer, the dairy industry, any type of clothing and equipment. It was funny. If you had pancakes for breakfast, you had to take a half a chicken, roasted in butter. Lunch and supper were the same. A half a chicken with pork chops or steak, all baked in butter. The list goes on and on. You could fill a hundred books with items bought by the government. Two weeks later, we were again rotated offline into the rear for medical update, hot food, sleep, etc., showers. Our captain said I was to give my platoon an intelligence talk on enemy weather and terrain. He gave me an army manual on the topic. I read the book over and over. I had never let a talk before. As I was given my talk, General Ginder, commander of the Thunderbirds, walked in, plus our captain, majors, and all those that accompany a general. I was petrified, and I don't remember a word I said. The next morning, I had orders and was on my way to Busan, the southern part of Korea, and flown to Tokyo, Japan for advanced intelligence training. I was bewildered. At the camp in Tokyo, I was given a plain set of clothes, and everything I had was put in a box. Then, I noticed that everybody was dressed in plain fatigue, no ranks, no insignias, no identification. You could be a private or a general. Also, no pencil and paper. We were told nothing was to be written. We must memorize the information we received over the next few weeks. In Tokyo, I was laying in my cot when a short earthquake 
occurred. People were screaming, windows popped out. I wondered if the ground was going to swallow me up, you know, like in the movies. But there was just aftershocks. The next day, I had orders to return to Korea. To my surprise, I was ordered to battalion headquarters of the 25th Tropic Lightning Division. The reason was that in the few weeks I was in Tokyo, the 45th Thunderbirds were dismantled, their colors and achievements and records were sent home to Oklahoma. I was also promoted to Sergeant First Class. My captain, my platoon, all my comrades were gone, and I was completely thrown into a job I didn't even understand. I was assigned 20 jeeps and staff to investigate blind crosses, spies, and keep all intelligence records. I reported to a West Point major who gave orders, but no explanations. Again, I was so lonely and miserable. Why were all these things happened to me? And I was devastated. My enlistment time was running out, and I was holding a master sergeant job, but the major would not submit my papers for my promotion. He said that if I signed up for another six years, he would submit me for promotion. He was a West Pointer and all army. I felt that I was being blackmailed or bullied, and told him so in a few short words. And so I was honorably discharged after two years of service. That was an amazing story. I'm just amazed that you remember everybody's names, <laughs> everybody's rank. You never forget certain things, but it comes back to me. The thing is, I don't like to tell war stories. I hear you. How about the one about when you were quail hunting in a minefield? <laughs> yeah, all the sergeants got shotguns, and we were walking in a minefield. I guess the younger guys were in front of us, pushing the quail. And what happened was, <laughs> we shot a couple of them, and they came down, and we went to go pick them up. And all of a sudden, we saw the triangle, and it said that you were in the minefield. So what we had to do was one of the guys... I took up the rear. <laughs> One of the guys took up the front, and wherever he stepped, we stepped in his step until we got past the sign. Fortunately, nobody got hurt, but it's scary. This was during the ceasefire phase, and yeah, that was weird. And North Korea and China are still an issue today. They, they're using North Korea as a barrier between themselves and the rest of, of anybody else. In other words, North Korea would just protect their flank. That's why they call MacArthur back. He wanted to go right up to the Yalu hmm. and get rid of the Chinese communists once and for all. And naturally, they pulled him back and had a parade for him and retired him and all that just to shut him up and yeah. stop him from doing anything. What was it like when you came back? Well, it was interesting. We came back on a troop ship and we laid out in the sun. And I have skin that darkens mm -hmm. considerably. Yeah. And I'm coming home. <laughs> 
we had a neighborhood candy store where all the guys would hang out and listen to the ball games and have sodas and whatnot. And my father was with one of my cousins. And I came up and I gave him a big hug and kiss. <laughs> and I said, hi, Dad. <laughs> and he, he looked at me like, who the hell are you? <laughs> but there was no parades. There was no appreciation. In fact, people didn't even know that you had served your country. In fact, you were considered a fool because when I got drafted, there were so many guys ran away to Canada, signed up in college, got their girlfriends pregnant. So for each thing, they got a deferment. So they didn't have to ever serve. Of course, that was right after the Second World War and before Vietnam and I don't know. It was a different world. You also told a story about how Aunt Elda made you a special lunch when you came back or a special dinner. Oh, my sister went all out. She made little dishes of peas and beans and corn and steaks and chicken. Just a tremendous variety, about 36 little dishes of different stuff to celebrate. And what I did was everything I took... I put right on top of the, the other. <laughs> so in other words, I put the corn on top. That's the way we got in the army. You walk through with the tray and they plop everything on top. And finally the ice cream went on. Well, she cried like a little baby. She was, she was brokenhearted. She had made everything special. And here I just piled it up because that's the way we ate. I felt sorry for it later, but at the time, it, it did not dawn on me. But one little thing about eating, before I went to Korea, we had the last time with our family, and one of the guys told me, he went home and had dinner with his yeah. parents, and he cursed. He says, mm. pass the curse butter. <laughs> and his father says, what did you say? He says, pass the curse butter. And... <laughs> His mother was shocked because he just didn't realize it, yeah. Was, yeah. it became second Basic nature. training, it just becomes, it's like a comma. Yeah. You're right. just, yeah, yeah. you're just uh, F here, yeah. F bomb there. He, yeah. he didn't mean such a thing. He didn't yeah. even know he was saying it. It just was. So they had an unhappy farewell. <laughs> There's so many stupid things that occur that you're sorry for later. Yeah. I went looking for a job. And I had been in intelligence, so it said security clerk. And mm -hmm. I figured, well, I could run some company security. Mm -hmm. I could do this. I could do that. I was in my early 20s. I could do mm -hmm. anything. The guy says to me, I'm, I'm sorry you misunderstood. This is Wall Street, and we're looking <laughs> for stocks and bonds, etc. But if you're willing to work for $50 a week, we'll hire you and teach you the trade. The heck, I was living at home with my father. My brothers and sister had got married and mm -hmm. had children. So I says, well, what the heck? So I was there 20 years, and I worked myself up as a minor partner in the firm. I went to Pace University at night. It was downtown from Wall Street by City Hall mm -hmm. in New York. So after work, I would go to college. And I got my degrees there. In fact, I got two degrees. I got one from Brooklyn College for business administration 
and I got my bachelor's degree in business from Pace University. But it took me six years at night. Mm. It was a very busy time. Uh, of course, Wall Street was feast and famine. He had a wonderful days and fantastic income and overtime, and he had stretches where you were starving. The first years when I worked the company, the guy said to me, what did you make this year? And I told him, and he says, okay. He made out a check for that oh. yearly amount, and he says, here's your bonus. So I went out and I bought a 57 Chevy, <laughs> top of the line, best <laughs> of everything, I had money to burn. Yeah. So <laughs> that went on for 20 years until the firm went bankrupt in 72 when you were born. It was a good run. And that's where you met mom? Yeah, mom was our head bookkeeper and a wonderful person. Still is. Had a very interesting story how I met her. I didn't meet her at work. Her brother was my right-hand man, uh, your Uncle Tony. And they invited me over for dinner. And I was a confirmed bachelor. I never wanted to go through what my father went through, mm. or my brothers, yeah. his sister. My younger brother married a beautiful girl, a sweet girl. She gave him two daughters, Terry and Kim, and she died of breast cancer. All I wanted to do was be free and easy and mm. do whatever I wanted to do. And I know people are going to think I'm crazy, but Tony didn't have the proper highball classes. So he called his father up and asked him if he had a set. And his father said, yeah, I'll send them over. Well, he sent over his daughter and her girlfriend. And we both saw each other when she came in the door, was introduced. And I looked at her and I tell you that God said, this is the one. And all my fears of marriage just dissolved and took me three years to get her to marry me. And that was over 51 years. So uh, he was right. This is the one. It's true. I never wanted to get married, ever. I was so busy in Wall Street. I was so busy school. I was so mm -hmm. busy doing my own thing, yeah. going there wherever I wanted to go. And you got Deanie and Wally working there? Yeah. Well, the reason we had a lot of relatives work, anybody you hired, it would cost $3,000 to have them investigated. Hmm. You had to have for the insurance company, because you dealt yeah. with stocks and bonds, you had to have everybody cleared. So to save money, we, or I, as office manager, decided <laughs> to put my relatives in there. <laughs> ne nepotism, do they call it? Yeah. We had my nephews and cousins and everybody working there. And also, you knew their background. You knew mm -hmm. if they were going to yeah. be drunk or they were going to be dope addicts or yeah. if they were going to take advantage or yeah. they goof off. We knew the kind of person. It saved the firm a lot of insurance money. It made life easier for me because I had people I could rely on True. and trust. We had a fantastic operation. We never lost the share of stock until the fair market came in 1972, the time you were born. And the bosses just couldn't handle it. They just kept buying stock. Value of the stocks went down, and they lost a fortune. They lost everybody's fortune. Now it's all computerized. and Yeah, everything's different. 
It's a different world. Believe it or not, I have hundreds of stories. <laughs> but what occurs is you have to explain the background in order to make the end result what it is. When I was a kid, Grandma would tell us all kinds of stories that we didn't know about and backgrounds. And like what you're doing, you could ask her questions and she'd explain the history and the background and the reason. She never lied. Well, thank you so much for talking with us. Oh, thank you. Appreciate it. I like sharing, especially my favorite son. <laughs> it's good to be your favorite son. All right, Pop. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening. This has been the third Egotistical Podcast. If you have a topic that's near and dear to your heart and you'd like to discuss it with me and the rest of the digital universe, please contact me at egotistpodcast at gmail.com. Yes, I did say that correctly. Or check out my website, www.egotisticalproductions.com. I'm Tony LaRocca, hoping that you have a good morning, a good evening, and or a good night. 